In the following live session recording, Mike Griffin, Public Affairs Representative for the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, talks about the relevance of religious liberty to the priority of evangelism and missions. This session is about the theological and philosophical approach that churches should have regarding the rights of religious liberty in our country. Its goal is to help church leaders leave with practical understanding that promotes evangelism and missions. Let's join Mike now. I'll get going here. I've got y'all some notes there, and I've got you a little um, cloth to clean your glasses or your uh, computer screen, and you can't get too many of those. I found out since I started wearing glasses the last three years. Uh, but let's look at our class tonight, what we're going to be talking about. Um, the session is about the theological, philosophical approach that churches should have regarding the rights of religious liberty in our country. As far as I'm concerned, you guys are jewels because this information in the average church is totally gone. Nobody understands why this is important. And it is the very bedrock of our country and the distinction of our country from all the other countries and all of history. I mean, it's, it's apples and oranges to compare our country to anybody else. It's just a different country. Uh, its goal is to help church leaders lead with a practical understanding that promotes evangelism and mission. So you see that, see how it all goes together. We begin by just looking at some scriptures. And I like to refer to that because I want folks to know um, that it's important that we understand that God calls us to the responsibility of obeying and honoring governmental authority. And in this passage here, it says, "Every soul is to be subject to the higher powers, for there's no power." But God and the powers of be the ordained of God, render therefore, verse 7, render therefore <clears throat> to all their duties, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to, uh, to whom honor is due. So that's our responsibility to obey the government. Government is the one of three institutions that God has given to govern the world, a home, church, and government. I mean, that, these are God's institutions. Now, we're going to show you in just a minute, God is over government, by the way. Government's not over us or God. God comes first. But anyway, you look at the passage there in First Peter, particularly verse 7, he says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. That's why we were talking about that just talking about before. You have to kind of balance where you're going to be at in that. And then in Mark uh, uh, 12, 17, and Jesus answering said to them, render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's and they marvel at him. So, now while this is true, we do have an obligation before God to obey those who rule over us in civil authority. However, we must not forget that God's authority does God's authority does trump government's authority. Meaning, if it comes down to obeying God or obeying the government, God comes first. And that's why I want to call your attention to a little video I want to show you about... Um, my name, my mind just went blank. Kaoki Baptist Church, which is one of the oldest continuous churches in the state of Georgia. And I want you to see their history had something to do. How's that? It's an outlet. 
I'm sorry. Where is the church? Oh, in Appling, Georgia, which is kind of over near. It's I just know where Appling. Close to Appling. Oh, Appling. Near Augusta. Near Augusta. A matter of fact, uh, this gentleman came from, I think, came over from South Carolina. But I want you to see this video, just a clip about their church and what they went through. I hope that's not too loud, y'all. grateful for your willingness to follow me as I follow the Lord. This journey hasn't been easy. I want you to know that I am confident that your sacrifice will bring glory to Christ. Come on. My heart yearns to fulfill the Great Commission. May the Lord bless our ministry wherever he leads us. Daniel Marshall, the founder of Kaioki, was born in 1706 in Windsor, Connecticut of Presbyterian parents. After being converted at the age of 20, he served as a deacon of the First Church of Windsor for 20 years. Then at the age of 48, Daniel Marshall became a Baptist and was baptized by immersion. Four years later, he was ordained as pastor and set about the gigantic task of evangelizing the southern area of the country. His journeys took him down the east coast through settlements in Virginia and then North Carolina. And then in 1762, Marshall and his family came to Stevens Creek, South Carolina. In less than 10 years, he established eight churches and laid the groundwork for countless others. From there, he began his work in Georgia. On one of his visits to Georgia, around 1770, Daniel Marshall was on his knees in prayer as he conducted public worship. Suddenly, heavy hands were felt on his shoulders, and a young constable arrested Marshall. Well, Anyone here provide security for this man and ensure that he appears in Augusta Monday hence for his trial? I will. The young constable temporarily released him into the custody of a gentleman who promised to ensure Marshall's appearance at his trial. Mrs. Marshall was indignant about the proceedings and rose to denounce such a law. She supported her position by quoting several texts of scripture with much force. Martha's inspired entreaty was so convincing that the constable himself was converted. Mrs. Marshall was also present in Augusta for her husband's trial on the following Monday. A colonel presided with a parson of the Church of England. The trial began when the parson commanded the prisoner to read a chapter of the Bible. Now, Marshall was not known for his eloquence. In fact, one friend described him as a weak man, a stammerer, and no scholar. While Marshall was a man of little education, he was known for his earnestness and holy zeal. When Daniel Marshall finished reading from Scripture, the parson berated him severely and ordered him to desist from preaching in St. Paul's parish. He can't even read. You are hereby ordered to cease preaching in the parish of St. Paul. Whether it be right to obey God rather than men, judge ye. Marshall was released, and soon thereafter, in direct defiance of the law, the 65-year-old preacher moved his family across the Savannah River and settled in what is now Columbia County, Georgia. Here he served the remainder of his life obeying God rather than men. Soon after the trial, religious persecution ended in the Augusta area. Daniel Marshall organized Georgia's first Baptist church in the spring of 1772 on Big Coyote Creek. In the 78th year of his life, Daniel Marshall died. His son Abraham recorded his last words. Dear brethren and sisters, I just gone. This night I shall probably expire. But I have nothing to fear. I fought a good fight. 
have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. With his very last breath, Daniel Marshall addressed his son Abraham. This same son succeeded him in the pulpit at Kaoki, where he preached faithfully for many years. Marshall's grandson, Jabez, followed his father Abraham as Kaoki's pastor, leaving a 61-year family legacy of ministry in this place. This old Kaoki building was erected in 1808, 26 years after Daniel Marshall's death. It is probably the third building. The first structure by Daniel Marshall was most likely a log church with primitive benches and a punching floor, but it could have been a frame building. It was in this first building that Daniel Marshall closed his fruitful life as pastor, preaching the gospel faithfully until his death in 1784. And so you have it. That was in Georgia. That was a perfect example of, you know, obeying, you going to obey God or man? <laughs> That's what it comes down to when you're dealing with the religious liberty issue. And there you have a, there's a copy of it, or there's a picture of it where it is today, and you can see it. talks about that incident when it took place, and, and the guy got saved that came, you know, to send him to the court. <laughs> and his, his wife, you know, just let him have it, you know, and shared the scripture. And did, uh, you know, it's just amazing what happened in that experience. Not many people know about it. And so that's exactly what we find here in the text of what the apostles would say, you know, you know, look, we can't help but speak with that which we've seen and heard. You know, we're going to have to do that. And so you and I, as much as we talk about religious liberty, and I, I hate to have to admit this to you, there's nowhere in the Word of God that promises that we're going to always have it, though, except in Christ. And... You know, so, and I'll talk about how that comes into play in just a little bit. But, um, let's see, before I get to that. We're living in a day when our religious liberty is under attack in ways I don't believe our founding fathers would ever dream would have happened. We're living in a day that unless the direction of our country changes, you'll be forced to have to pay the same price that our first generation Christians were forced to pay when they declared, you know, was Caesar Lord is Jesus Lord and many of them went to prison and were killed because they said you know Caesar is not Lord and so the so the following we have in first Chronicles uh, 12 32 which is on our banner here is that the sons of Issachar they understood the times and they knew what to do and so I asked this question do we as Christians uh, what do we need to know as Christians about the importance of defending religious liberty today and what do we need to be doing in order to defend it? So there are basically five things we're going to look at here tonight. The first fact has to do in relationship to the scope of religious liberty. And by that I mean first, the First Amendment was not designed to restrict the practice of religion to the confines of a church building. And so that's where the issue comes today. We saw, saw in the Obama administration, they seem to more and more say that First Amendment rights regarding religious liberty is pretty much limited to a building or to a church or to a person's mind about what they want to believe. But if you look at the First Amendment, which most people are not familiar with, it says Congress shall make no law respecting 
an establishment of religion or prohibiting, notice this, the free exercise thereof. So the free exercise means this is not just in your head. This is not just in the four walls of this room. The free exercise is everywhere in this country, wherever you're at. So notice the phrase, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. Now, the point needs to be made that the wall of separation implied here was a wall of separation to keep the state from the church, but it never was to keep the church from the state. Now, there is a separation of ecclesiology from government, but not theology from government. For example, in every state constitution, there acknowledges the establishment uh, they acknowledge God in the establishment of the state. For example, when you look at <clears throat> governors, I mean Georgia's constitution, it says, "We, the people of Georgia, relying upon the protection and the guidance of Almighty God, do ordain and establish this constitution." So again, there's a separation of church and state, ecclesiology from government. But there is nowhere that we found in the, in the founding of our country that there was a separation of God from state. So all 50 preambles, even to Hawaii, all acknowledge God in the establishment of their state. But they did not see that as establishing a church. Although there was some problems in those early years where, you know, that was the concern of the letter that was sent from Je sent to Jefferson about the wall of separation, and that had to do with denominations trying to receiving money from the state to actually operate. Um, again, the point being, the fact that government acknowledges God is not the establishment of a religion to do that. Now, the fact of the matter is, um, you know. When you, when you really look at it, I may have gotten ahead of myself, but uh, it says the free exercise thereof, we have to understand the fact that, um, anyway, the bottom line is that the freedom of our religion in our country is not just the freedom to worship on a particular day or a particular place or only a particular religion, state-sanctioned or approved. The freedom of religion is not just a right to believe certain things in your head, but it is a right to behave a certain way in everyday life. The First Amendment is not confined to private worship, but for public practice. And so, let me tell you why all this is true. It's true because obeying God is not confined to a certain day. Obeying God is not confined to a certain place. Obeying God is not confined to a certain building. Freedom of religion is to be as inclusive as obeying God is, is to be everywhere, it's to be all the time. And so that's why you find the phrase, the free exercise of religion is given there. Secondly, the second fact is the conscience of religious liberty. So how would we define that? Well, the conscience of religious liberty, the underlying premise of religious liberty is that the government should not set itself up as lord of the conscience. So what you find here is that the Founding Fathers knew that the government was to never try to tell us what we have to believe or what we cannot believe. 
And this is the beauty of the First Amendment. As citizens, you can worship who, you can worship what, you can worship where, you can worship when you want, or you can choose to not worship at all. This is a conscientious right that we have. Now, we talk about the government not being the Lord of the conscience, or our conscientious rights, what do we mean by that? Well, first of all, we mean is that there is a court higher than the Supreme Court, meaning that God is higher than government. Now, it's been said that you know the government may make a good uncle, but it can never be your Heavenly Father. <laughs> uncle Sam. You know. uh, secondly, it means that every other freedom we have is based upon the first freedom of religion, that is, freedom of conscience. That's what we're talking about. In other words, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, which is all those other First Amendment rights. If you were to look at the whole amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom also to petition the government, go into the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, are all not needed if we don't have the freedom of conscience. There's no freedom of conscience to be able to act, uh, then none of those other rights are any good. So those are paramount. Now I've had people tell me, if you don't have the Second Amendment, your your First Amendment is no good. Well, if I don't have the First Amendment, I don't need your Second Amendment. In other words, there's no no ability to do that. Well, then we're just going back to who all, then we're just going back to who has the most force to make somebody do something, and then that's back to man, not to God. So it's acknowledgement of God. Um, what my parents told me was the main reason they did this was because. In Europe and in England, in particular, you had to belong to the Church of England. True. And they didn't want any of that. They wanted people to be free to, you know, not right. join the state, not have a state church. Right. That's why you have the pilgrims coming over here. I mean, that's what they're doing. <clears throat> so the third point on that is, is that the freedom of religion is the key to the right to be able to communicate the gospel in public. You know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. I mean, that's, that's the connection I'm trying to make with this class. So you see, it's the First Amendment and the freedom of religion in our country that gives us the right to appeal to the conscience of man that in return gives leeway to conversion. In other words, no conversion until the conscience is, is stirred. Again, here's the point. The freedom to choose whether or not we will follow God that is to have our conscience stirred, comes from God, not from man. Man does not give us the right to choose. God's the one that gives us the right to choose. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This there believe Him should not perish. So there's a choice involved. So it all goes back to the Lord. And so all of this is so very important because, again, authentic choice is key to authentic belief. It's the same way when it comes to loving someone. You you can't make it happen. There has to be a choice. And now love, we were we were told to obey the Lord and to uh, obey the command to love one another. But here's the point: love is what fuels the obedience behind all of that. And so we talk about the scope of religious liberty. We talk about the conscience of religious liberty. Then we talk about the principle of religious liberty. And the principle of religious liberty is that it's based on the order of authority that exalts God. And so here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that true religious liberty has
has the following order. In other words, the order of religious liberty, uh, as our founders wanted, is that God is always first. You know, the Ten Commandments, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So, <clears throat> so here it is. God is always first. Man is second. Government is last. Now, in the order where religious liberty is being denied, guess what happens? Government is first. Man is second. And God is last. So you see, our Declaration of Independence said we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal and that they are endowed by their, first, their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, which in their vernacular really was talking about property rights. So life, liberty, property rights, the pursuit of happiness. And you'll notice that... Um, Life comes first. It's hard to experience the other things if you're not alive. And so the point, um, the point that I so eagerly want you to see is that our unalienable rights, that is those that cannot be not denied or taken away. In other words, men cannot take away ultimately something that God gives you. I mean, you can't take Jesus out of my heart. <laughs> you can't do that. Uh, that which, especially that which has been conferred by God, and God is the one that's given us these rights, not government. So think about this for just a moment. This means that our rights come from God, not government. The government's responsibility, listen to this, is to protect our rights, not to determine our rights. And that's, that's big. We're living in a society today that people think it's the government that tells us what our rights are. No, our rights come from God, and then God created the government to protect the rights that he's given us. And that's why our founding fathers, that's why the pilgrims and others begin to recognize the right of conscience, not government, to be able to rule over men. And um, matter of fact, when we look at that in relationship to life, uh, I'm always reminded of this quote from Ronald Reagan. So if we cannot diminish the value of one category of human life, the unborn, without diminishing the value of all human life. So that's why life is so very important. Those legislators, even in Congress, I've heard they have done surveys that say that the most fiscal conservatives are the conservatives who are the most social conservatives on the area of life. In other words, when you're conservative on the life issue, you pretty much line up under all the other issues right, showing the priority of life and that responsibility. Um, this is important that the government not be ultimately in charge of all things because if the government can give it then the government can take it away <laughs> but if government did not give it then the government responsibility then is to protect it so you see the primary purpose of government is to protect my God given rights which are life, liberty and property rights so then we look at number four the freedom of religious liberty. And that's sort of a, a duplication because you can sometimes say religious freedom. But if we, if we look at the, the freedom of religious liberty is this, the defense of religious liberty is not the same thing as promoting religious or moral relativism. And there have been some on the right that have been a little bothered by some of the religious liberty moves but of what's been happening of recent, but there is no reason to feel that way 
And the point I want to make here is that some Christians are afraid of promoting strong religious liberty rights for the fear that it's going to promote that all religions are the same and that all morality is relative to the culture, and that's just simply not true. I've seen this false claim made against the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, and Sharia law. Some of us said, well, if we, if we push religious liberty, we're going to have Sharia law. That's not true. Uh, the claims that it will promote Sharia law and that we will be oppressed by other religions recognized by their rights is simply not true. Or it's being said that promoting the rights for people to believe their own moral convictions will lead to demanding moral relativism as our, uh, in, you know, in our country. But that's simply not true. We as Christians have to understand that there is a difference in saying differences are accepted. Listen to this. And that differences are to be respected. There's a difference. In other words, I can respect your right to believe what you want to believe without having to believe it too. In other words, I can respect your right to differ with me without, without agreeing that you were right. Just our respecting our rights is not agreeing with what we believe necessarily. We have to separate that. So one of the problems that we're seeing in our country is we have begun to label disagreement as hate speech. And we've even gone further than that now. Now if you disagree with somebody, it's racism. Somehow there's a, some connection to racism with it. And so what we're doing, we're seeing that the God of the sexual revolution has become the supreme God of America, a God that demands its rule over government, its rule over politics and culture as a whole. We're seeing the God of Political correctness is enforcing censorship of speech uh, and ideas that conflict with its belief and agenda. Beating up people who are disagreeing with and then blaming them that I would not have had to beat you up if you had not believed that. You're believing it is what caused me to have to hit you. If you don't want me to hit you, then don't believe it. Now that is turning rights upside down. That, that's not what our country is based on. Um, and so that's what we're seeing happening. So there are two facts uh, we have to get straight in our country. Number one, I don't have to agree with you in order to love you. <laughs> um, I can still love you if we disagree. Agreement is not the premise for love. Secondly, if I disagree with you, it does not mean that I hate you either. Nor does it mean that you necessarily hate me. Disagreement does not have to equal hate. It does not have to equal racism. So here's the point. That we as Christians must never forget. And it is that biblical Christianity believes in a free market of ideas. Why? Because we believe in the product. We believe that the gospel wins out. We don't have to keep others from the table of ideas. We just need to have a seat at the table and truth will always be able to defend itself if it's able to be applied. And so we've been looking at what's been happening over the last few years is we've been losing in public policy debates because we've not engaged. If we don't engage sooner than later, given our rights as citizens, 
we're going to be denied the right to engage because they're going to be able to describe our belief as being hate or racist or some other derogatory term about absolute moral biblical truth. In other words, you're going to be painted as something that you're not in order to say you don't have the right to be involved because you're one of those kinds of persons. I mean, I'm 58 and I can remember where years ago it was the whole thing was we just want to have a voice. We, we just want to be able to believe and to share. We want to have, uh, we want tolerance. We just want to be tolerated. Now the people who once talked about we, want, we just want tolerance. Now it's basically saying we just want to shut the other side up. Do y'all see that we're sliding that way? And um, it's, 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 it's unbelievable how this is happening. It, and, and my whole point in our working with public policy is that when Dr. White hired me, Dr. White's belief was, and I know that Thomas feels the same way, is that Georgia Baptist is not going down to the Capitol so we can run it. You know, I've been accused of running things in churches and counties, and I said, believe me, I am not in charge of running this county because it ain't going the way I want it. Believe me. Dr. White's point was, when public policy is being made at the Capitol, we want Georgia Baptist to have a seat at the table. So that when the debate is going on, we have somebody there that's going to represent 1.4 million Georgians, which is what's represented in Georgia Baptist, over 35 to 3,600 churches. That's, that's over 10% of the population represented in just Georgia Baptist. 1.1 million Catholics. You put the Catholics and the Baptists together, that's 25% of the population represented in those two denominations or two religious groups. We want to come to the table and say, when you pass a resolution at the Georgia Baptist Convention, Mike Griffin's going to be standing there saying, this is what Georgia Baptists believe. And Georgia Baptists represent this amount of people. And believe me, principle is where we get our, if you want to call it power. But in a political realm, they look at you not just on your principle, they look at you at your influence, what your constituents you represent. And I hate to get it down to numbers, but preachers are not afraid of numbers. But, but you know, I, you can't get elected unless you have more numbers than the other guy. <laughs> you can't pass legislation unless you have more numbers for it than against it. I mean, constitutional amendments don't get passed unless they have more numbers for it than against it. So at some point, numbers do come into play. And that's why when I go to the Capitol and I send you out an email or I go on Facebook or whatever and say I need you to call your rep because this bill's coming up uh, if they hear crickets it don't matter then <coughs> and I'm off my notes you say well I like you better when you're off your notes but there's a 4G network operating in politics gold gals glory and games <laughs> uh, it came from me anyway <laughs> People say I might not plagiarize, but I've never heard anything like this before. But uh, that's what the people in my church say. I've cut up with them. Those four G's will destroy a politician. Well, let me tell you something, they'll destroy a pastor. Gold, 
gals, sexual immorality, glory, narcissism, playing games. Just, you know, to play and put games to get things done, just being political. You scratch my back, I scratch your back, I help you, you help me. And it's just a game that's going on down there. I had a friend of mine who's had another friend that came to him and says, your problem down here is you don't know how to play, and I won't use all the words he used, game. And this person responded, I didn't get elected to come down here and play games. I came here to represent the people genuinely, not to play politics down here. I'm going to do what's right. Now, anybody that's worked in a political system, anybody that's worked in the church, understands that you know there is polity. I mean, there is... Um, proper procedure, there's uh, respect, dignity that's to be given to one another and working with people. You just can't uh, be hard to get along with because you think you're right all the time. But you do have to be able to stand on principle when it comes down to it. And you do have to understand that it does take, take some decorum in dealing with people. And that will help you as well. But again, it's, the main thing has got to be what is uh, what is right. So eventually the government gets to the point of telling us that we don't have the right to believe what the Bible says. Like it's, we're trailing that direction. Without so, severe punishment. Right, right, without punishment. Right. So at that some point kind. in time we're saying what, the, what has gone wrong? Is it the government is just simply Establishing rules that are outside of it's it's playing in places that it's not. Supposed it is, to be. and it is, and what has happened? I have a, a stump speech I do. A, you could call it in politics and preaching as a message. But on, is there not a cause? And I talk about how what has happened is that the church has become neutralized in its influence in politics because it's too spiritual to get involved in it. And I'm saying that in our country, it's not an option. It's a responsibility that God's going to hold us accountable for to get into politics. And I know that's a terrible word, politics, poly meaning many ticks, bloodsuckers. I mean, I know that you put that together, that's a terrible thing to talk about. But politics, listen, it's hard to believe, is not evil. It's the people that get in it that make it that way. So if God's people back out of politics, guess what people get in politics? The wrong people. The wrong people. And the scripture says that when the righteous are in charge, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth the rule, the people mourn. In our country, it's not a monarch, not a dictatorship. It's a representative democracy. We have a part to play, and the consent, the govern, our government is to, to govern at the consent of the governed, we the people. So I say, if we the people will be Second Chronicles seven fourteen, if my people will be we the people, then it's going to happen. What's the problem with our country today? Is it the government? Is it all these wicked? Whoremongers and liars and murderers and thieves? No. Second Chronicles 7.14, which I know it was talking to a particular time, but there's a principle there. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. See, 
Meaning, the greatest impact we could have on government and politics today is that the church would get right with God. I mean, if God's people would get involved and not go in here and say, if all you people get right. No, if, if we will walk with the Lord and, and be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving the church that God wants us to be and get involved in all these, bring salt and light to bear in every facet of society which includes politics, which I know we don't want to deal with. But, you know, what I do is what has to be done. It's like a life insurance salesman. It's like a mortician. It's like Roto-Rooter. Nobody wants to do any of those three things, but you know what? They're necessary in life. I'd hate to be a life insurance. I, I'm not into life insurance. I'm into assurance. <laughs> life assurance. You know, who wants to go sit around and talk about people dying all? Who wants to be, you know, a, a funeral director? You know, uh, who wants to work for Roto Rooter? <laughs> but you know what? Those are three absolute necessities. Or be a tax, you know, collector or you know, a guy that does taxes. I mean, I think that would be terrible to have to do it. But you know what? Somebody's got to do it. And if you don't, guess what? Somebody else is going to do it. And they may not believe what you believe and you will eventually begin to be impacted by that. Um, and so we have to remember that biblical Christianity believes in a free market of ideas. Um, uh, why? Because we believe our product, the gospel wins out, truth will defend itself. I, I said I'd be for this I haven't said it recently. I haven't said it in one of these meetings. But, you know, have a, have a day at school where every religion can come and just, you got 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Give her all you got. Christianity and biblical belief doesn't fear anybody being able to say anything. You're not trying to shut people up. You just want to be able to say it because you know what? The proof's in the pudding. You know, and so my, my point is this. It's about persuasion, not coercion. We don't have to coerce people to believe the gospel. We use persuasive. How do we persuade them? The Word of God, the love of God, the truth of the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit working in all of that brings a decision between that individual, not us. It's not us getting between them and God. We're bringing them and God together and then let them... But we're a part of that bringing them. We're ambassadors representing the Lord to, to bring them together. So we're using persuasion. And what we're seeing happening now is these children are being caught up into gender dysphoria and all of the things where I think if any of us would be honest, all of us between, although I don't remember what happened from one much, I don't think I remember anything from one, but from 1 to 18, you can think and do a lot of stupid things. How, how many of us would like to get hung in one of those stupid things the rest of your life? I mean, wouldn't you want to kind of like go through that, not stay in it? Even though you may have thought some stupid things, done some stupid things, tried to work through some things, maybe some quirky identities for a little while in there, but you know, you're just kind of work. But what if you went up and told, somebody come up and told you, oh no, that's what you are now. And then you did things physically to yourself that you could never undo. 
And in our day, like they are doing. In our day, to be quite honest with you, like it or lump it, a lot of young people are really not fully understanding the repercussions. Well, they don't really understand the consequences of their decisions until a lot later on. We used to see that a lot sooner. Long, uh, you know, remember, you go back 100 years, 150 years ago, you got people going to college and graduating in their teens. I mean, Harvard and Yale. I mean, you, you just saw that. Now, it just seems like it seems like the adolescence is delayed. It just keeps going on and on and on. It's like 25 they're not growing up. But they're being deliberately manipulated by... That's right. So, and yet, I've already had to meet with people representing suicide prevention saying that George Babbage need to, uh, need to get behind the... Non-conversion therapy law, saying that if you're under 18, a therapist cannot start any therapy uh, to take a child who's transgender back to where they, their biological sex is, because you don't want to mess with a child. Well, I said, well, to be quite honest with you, they've already apparently been messed with. That's got them to where they are because when you get into single-digit children thinking things about sexual rotation and gender identity that are not biological, that had to really come from somebody else. And in some cases, although I am, I think that parental authority is paramount because of the biblical standard, but some of this is coming from our parents. Some of it's not. Some of it's coming from a drag queen coming reading stories to you know to preschoolers so that's already getting into their head you know kids like to dress up and play all kinds of things but dressing up and playing is one thing man becoming is a whole nother thing out here and when people take childish thoughts and make them legitimate lifelong decisions is not good um, anyway so I think there's some coercion going out here and, and the point here is, uh, let's see, persuasion confronts the will. Coercion forces and manipulates the will and the emotions. Christianity does not have to coerce because our proof is in the product. Jesus is actually a person. Our product is actually a person, Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we need to remind one another that pluralism is not the same as relativism. We're not saying just because you have the right to speak that you are right when you speak. Therefore, the gospel does not require us to stop others from speaking. We're not trying to uh, censor people, although that's exactly what is happening to us. I mean, Christians are becoming persecuted now. Now, again, I don't say, I said there's nowhere in the Bible that says you're not going to be persecuted if you're a believer. The difference is, if it happens here, because of our neglect of being involved in the government, we are being the persecutor, not just the persecuted, because of our former government. So we will have to answer to God for the persecution of Christians because we abrogated or whatever, we just neglected our responsibility or gave it to somebody else and didn't take our commitment as being a Christian citizen serious. We were too spiritual and Martin Niemöller said the same thing, and I hate to refer back to Germany because it makes me think you don't have an argument when you go back there, but 
But the facts are there. He said, you know, they came from the Jews, and I didn't say anything. I wasn't a Jew. They came from the communists. I didn't say anything. I wasn't a communist. They came from the trade unions. I didn't say anything. I wasn't a trade unionist. They came from the Catholics. I didn't say anything because I was a Protestant. And then he said, Martin Lee Mower, they came from me, and by that time there was no one left to speak for me. So my point is, when you and I wait till it's, it, it is only us, then it will be only us, and it will be nothing you can do. Whether you believe or not in Second Amendment rights, if you do believe in them, and you wait till two federal agents are standing there with their shields saying, we're here to confiscate your weapons, and you're standing in your cup of coffee and in your bathrobe, it's probably too late to demand your Second Amendment right. Because it has come straight to your house. And that's the thing I'm trying to convince pastors of. When the IRA agent comes in and sits in your, in your congregation, when the government official comes and sits in your church, going to watch what you say, you, I'm just saying, is that what you're waiting on? Because when that happens, you might as well just hand your hands up because you're going to jail. Nothing wrong with going to jail. Nothing wrong with suffering for Jesus. Okay? Everybody's done that throughout all kinds of centuries. But in this case, you're causing it. And that's why I'm saying our ability to freely do the missions and evangelism that we need to do is going to be severely hampered if it's effective. If your church is not effective, you don't need to worry about the Church Alliance program. Because you're not doing anything. In other words, you're not really reaching the community and you're not seeing lives changed you know, from repentance is not taking place in your church. People are saying they accepted Christ and they're just keeping living in the same lifestyle. They don't act like they're a new creation at all. You don't need this. Matter of fact, uh, you won't have to worry about the rapture. You'll still be here the next week. and have church. You won't, you won't miss a lick of the snake. I mean, you need to be right on through the whole thing because you don't... No, but you're not preaching absolute truth and the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to heaven. You don't need this stuff. <laughs> Your church is going to be fine. But I think you're going to need this because you, you do want to be a good steward and, and continue to be able to preach the gospel as long as you can. Now, if the Lord comes a time when that's just it's going to fold up and we're just going to have to do that, then you know we'll not be the first Christians that were persecuted for our faith. But I would think that the people that were first persecuted were not persecuted because they refused to accept their responsibility. In other words, they were not in nations where they were a responsible part of the government. They didn't have anything to do with the government doing it. Um, I, I don't want to be a masochist about suffering for Jesus. I just want to. I don't want to have this. You know, I've been to India twelve times, Nepal three. So I've, I've seen people who have end up having a martyr syndrome. They love bragging about how they've been beaten. But I don't think that's what God calls us to to in that. And when I hear preachers tell me, I'm sorry, I'm getting on my soapbox now. When they got off of it now, whatever, I don't know. When they tell me, you know, I'm just going to, when it, I'm not getting involved in this stuff, when it happens, I'll just go to prison. I'm thinking, if you're not going to preach on religious liberty and responsibility to Christian citizenship, when you're not being persecuted, what are you it's going to happen when they come through the door to take you down to the jail? And all of a sudden, now you're going to stand? If you're not going to stand when you're not being persecuted, then what makes you think you're going to stand when the persecution comes? 
I mean, I'm just saying, if, if you're not standing now when it's not happening, but when it happens, you have to worry about me, I'll go to jail. No, you might want to rethink that. I mean, you may, you may find a way to get out of it. So, I, I love my preacher friends. It's just, I is one, you know, they'll say it. Uh, but sometimes preachers want to believe that they're not supposed to say anything because they don't want to have to say anything. And believe me, I don't think pastors are to get up and just bang, bang, bang on this and, you know, where it becomes, it looks like some kind of political thing all the time. But what's wrong with just preaching a good Bible message on marriage? What about a Bible message on human sexuality? You don't have to use, you can use proper language and terminology in a public setting to talk about what God says. What about just preaching a message once a year on the sanctity of human life and about the glorious life that God's given us and being created in the image of God and giving the biblical text for that? I mean, you know, if you want to deal, what about gambling and other types of things? So, you know, this is this could be a harm on our society. We're to love people. And how can you be treating your neighbor if you want to take money from them? I mean, it's hard to be loving your neighbor as yourself if you're doing to people you don't want to have. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can preach on these things. And you know what? Your people take the Word of God and the Spirit of God uh, or to have some discernment and then help them be informed on what the candidates believe and you're not telling them who to vote for but you know if they've been taught properly and they find out this person doesn't be believes in abortion anytime well you might want to in their mind they'll think well I don't think I want to vote for them because that's not you know what I'm saying it's not that you're telling them who to vote for but you're telling them what God's word says and you're trying to find the best person that represents God's word <laughs> I, and I, I know there, there's a, you have to be careful in that. And then, then lastly, um, the responsibility of religious liberty. And, 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 and that is that biblical Christianity requires that we stand up for religious liberty. And this is where in the, the passage we were talking about earlier in 1 Chronicles 32, 12, they knew what to do. You see, we have to understand that this right of religious freedom will not prevail if we don't defend it, if we don't stand up for it. Biblical Christianity demands that we not take it for granted. And so, why should we stand up for religious liberty? Well, number one, we as Christians are citizens of two kingdoms. I mean, there's a sense in which all of us as believers have got a green card. <laughs> we're just passing through here. We're not really we're really citizens of another country. And seeing that this is true, uh, it didn't keep Paul from using his rights as a Roman citizen to justify his preaching of the gospel uh, here on earth. So actually his citizenship, listen, became a platform. His citizenship became a platform to share the gospel off of. He, he didn't run from it. He used it. He cashed it in. He said, I'm, I'm a citizen of Rome. You can't treat me this way. And he demanded his rights that drove him all the way to Rome. Why? He said, well... I got this one reason, and but let me say this. Ultimately, God wants to get the gospel to Caesar. <laughs> uh, so listen, if this is true with Paul in Rome, that's a you know, with an emperor, how much more is that true in a democratic republic? Think about that, really. So I have to remember the first three words of the Constitution are we the people, we are the government. This is uh, not a responsibility that we can blame others for. You're it. Look in the mirror. Why is our country the way it is today? 
go look in the mirror. I mean, I'm it. And when I was a kid playing around, you know, we did tag, you tag somebody and say, you're it. Well, look, when we look at our, tag us. Why is our country this way? Tag us. We're it. I mean, I, I want to grow up. I want to grow up one day. I'm 50. I hope that I'll grow up. And I'm saying as I go older, grow older, I don't want my, I got six grandkids. I don't want them to say, I don't know where my G-Paw was on our country when they took this out or stopped it. I almost like, no, my G-Paw preached the gospel. My G-Paw ran for public office. My G-Paw was at the Capitol lobbying for what is right. He traveled this state all over, you know, 3,000 miles a month, sometimes teaching and preaching. I would say if it goes down, it ain't going to go down because I wouldn't do anything. I want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Man, my God's able. Hey, but I'm going to tell you what, if he don't, in this providence, I don't understand it. For some reason, God doesn't intervene. We ain't bowing down. <laughs> if I go down, that means I'm going up. <laughs> so we're not going to worry about it. We're going to stay, stay with the stuff. Uh, so when I think about this, this example sticks out most in my mind of Jesus, again, standing before Pilate. Most of us don't have a problem identifying with Jesus as a persecuted citizen, but most of us don't realize that we are Pilate too. In our country, we are the persecutor. Uh, the point I'm making is that all of us have to accept some part of responsibility in the reason our country is in the shape it is. Uh, it, this matter of participating in government is not a choice uh, if we're going to do what is right. Um, we either are part of the solution or we're part of the problem you know, if we're going to be obedient to God. And then, uh, secondly, as Christians, we stand up because we have a relationship with Christ that is personal, but listen to this, it's, it's not private. And there are two reasons why it's not private. First of all, we have a declaration in Matthew 28, 19 that we're to go out. And then we have a new demeanor given within us. We're new creations in Christ by our very nature. You know, the reason my dog barks and doesn't meow is commensurate with his nature. He's a dog. So being born again creates within us the nature of salt life. The fact that we have a risen Lord is why we cannot stay here. And therefore, there's no such thing as a privatized gospel. There's no such thing as secret agent Christians by our very nature. Uh, but we as Christians have to see that the real goal of religious persecution is to silence the gospel. They're not going to say that. They're going to use public accommodation laws, sexual orientation, gender identity laws, SOGIs they call them. All these things are going to be used to shut down churches and activities. Okay, already done in Iowa, or tried to do it in Massachusetts. Public accommodation laws, how are they going to do it? Well, say you have to have a transgender person be able to go into your bathroom. Not in our church. Well, it's a public place, isn't it? And they tried to do that. ADF came in and helped them stop it. But it's going to get to the point, one of them had like, you know, if you're going to have a spaghetti supper, it says public invited. If there's a bathroom ordinance that requires transgender individuals to be able to go into your bathroom, you won't be able to stop them. Unless you, they're telling me, unless you get a private invitation or you're a member. They've already tried to make churches public accommodation law. Uh, yeah, comply. They have to comply with it. They were able to stop it. 
That's where they're headed. They're not going to come at it directly. Come at you because you're preaching Jesus. Stop. That'd be too easy for us to deal with that. They're going to say you're not you're not keeping the laws here, and you're a public accommodation. So we don't want you to be public. We don't want you to be reaching people. You see what I'm saying? It, that's what the goal ultimately is, and that's why we have Janet Folger. What she said, 2012. No. Let's see. 2007, 8, book 12 years ago, entitled The Criminalization of Christianity. Here's what she said. As a Christian in this country, you may be understandably reluctant to speak out on moral issues like abortion, homosexuality, and pornography. But what we have the right to remain silent, that's not what God calls us to do. Listen to this. Because if the world can silence truth, what's it really going for? Gospel. So that's my point. This is to connect your religious liberty, evangelism, missions. Listen, if the gospel's not true, then nothing's true. If the gospel is true, then it defines all truth. Anytime you and I stand for something that's true, it's only true because the gospel's true. In other words, there is no absoluteness in the gospel, then everything is relative. You believe what you want to. You can be like Peter Singer who was an ethicist professor at Princeton and on the 15th panel committee that ran Obamacare who said he didn't see anything wrong with bestiality. He couldn't find anything morally wrong with it. Because if there's nothing right, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> I mean, he said as long as the animal was not resisting, or was not harming the animal physically. He didn't see anything wrong with it. If you want to do, he that. believes that humans are animals. Well, I thought in in his writing and in the YouTube video on it, he was seemingly distinguishing humans from animals. I thought of which he he also in other videos I've seen said that the killing of an infant was not was was not as bad as the killing of a pig or a chicken because there was more suffering involved in the killing of an animal than the killing of a preborn or post-abortive. In other words, he believed that you might order to wait up to 18 months to determine whether a child should live until adequate testing has been done regarding whether or not... It's a utilitarian principle that says the greatest good for the greatest number. So. This child, he doesn't have knowledge of what is happening. Doesn't people ask, "Do you remember when you were born?" No, I just remember somebody hit me on the rear, and I don't remember anything. No, I mean really, think about it. You don't know that. He's saying until you're cognizant of everything that's going on, you're not actually a person anyway. So if you can kill a child inside the womb because of some, you know, he's incompatible with life ethic is not being met on inside the womb, then what's the difference between killing a child outside the womb? If it's for that reason, that it would cause some type of, of of cultural harm to allow that person to be alive, if it's okay to kill a child because of some fetal abnormality, then no different to kill him on the outside of the womb. And we say the same thing, but for different reasons. We are saying that's right. Yeah, if it's, if it's wrong to kill a child outside the womb, it's three inches. It's wrong to kill one on the inside. But they're saying we justify the killing on the inside. What's wrong with killing a child on the outside? 
And there have been all types of ethics that have said, you know, weeks or months would be necessary to really determine the worthiness of a child based on whether or not the, the parents want him or not. That's utilitarianism. That's the rule of the day. Amago day is gone. That, uh, no one's intrinsically valuable or worthy because of who they are, because of the image of God in them anymore. That's not it. Society determines your value. My uncle was a doctor, and a woman came to him who wanted an abortion. And he said, okay, but he said it would be safer for you if we waited till the baby was born yeah. and killed it. And she said, oh, but that would be murder. And he said, well, it would be murder any time after conception. <laughs> so he didn't do it. Well. I got a quote from a lady in Salon Magazine, Mary Alice, I can't remember her last name, uh, May 2013, saying that, you know, she said it's hard for liberals like me to admit this, but that a baby inside a mother's womb is a whole nother life, but it's a life worth sacrificing. I mean, because of the technology we've got now, you can't get away with this, it's just a blob of tissue anymore. I mean, beyond the first three or four weeks. I mean, you, you, you're actually in. So they're saying this is a whole. They say it's, it's, it's about my body, but, but there's another whole body in your body. So she said, "Well, that is true. Yeah, it is. But it's worth sacrificing." So that's, you know, that's a eugenic policy. It's a eugenic ethic, where you determine. I mean, that's just eugenics. So we we, we, we want to put her with. We would put her with 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 uh, uh, Singer. We would put her with uh, Adolf Hitler with the KKK because that those are all they're all for eugenics. I mean, you know, weeding out certain weeds of society. I, I I mean, I said this. I mean, we're way beyond what I'm supposed to be saying. But I mean, I was at a symposium at at Georgia State University on dwarfism, and a dwarf was speaking. Uh, I don't know, like he's in his 30s, 40s, talking about uh, consent laws about whether or not to, uh, about knowing whether or not to abort a, a child that had dwarfism. And I raised my hand, I said, would it be wrong, I mean, is it wrong to discriminate against a person because of dwarfism? Yes. Wouldn't it be wrong to discriminate against him before he was born too? If it was wrong afterwards? And that 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 symposium went on their internet site and you know they cut back my question out of my statement. It did not go public. Because my point was, he's standing there talking about it. And and if if they do what we say he said you ought to do, have just have just make sure you have consent to know what you're doing before you have a child with dwarfism, he wouldn't even be here probably. <laughs> I'm thinking you're not even being selfish. <laughs> I mean, uh, this was ridiculous. Uh, discrimination is wrong unless it's in the womb. I mean, I, I lobbied before the Georgia Right to Life on the prenatal non-discrimination act where we were going to be able to say if a mother went in to have an abortion and said she was doing it because of the sex of the child or because of the race of the child you couldn't have the abortion because that's a eugenic policy inside the women you have so this brings us back to, to me a question 
I've heard people get out of pastors preaching tremendous David Gibbs type sermon or a wall builders type sermon. But the question is, what then should we do? How should we do? What should we do next? We'll all, at least here, we agree in the terrible situation you find yourself. Well, what should we do? The yep. most frustrating sermons that I know are when the pastor preaches a true truth with great power and then drops it. Yeah, or he won't take it to the next level. level. Well, when, when I'm doing my talking on these things, as a Christian citizen and, and a relationship to public policy, which will eventually determine this, whether you're Terry Schiavo or whoever, it's public policy will drive this. Listen, public policy will find its way to every doorstep. And once it finds its way to your doorstep, it's too late. So here's what I tell people. Number one, you pray. Number two, you share the gospel. Number three, you get registered to vote. Number four, you vote. And number five, six, seven, vote for the right person. There's only one thing worse than not voting. It's voting for the wrong person. Voting in the evil man. Okay, so you, there's got to be some education about who the candidates are. And so we actually at Georgia Baptist facilitated sending out a voter guide. We did. And it, it was, it was a, it, those voter guides by the Christian uh, um, Faith and Freedom Coalition the year before or two were used in North Carolina by the liberals. In other words, they, they were not fictitious. That they didn't. They were not ashamed that they were for any abortion. They were not ashamed that they were for raising taxes or whatever. I mean, they they listed what they said they believed. They listed what the other candidate did, and they actually handed them out to their people because they used it to drive them to the polls. That's how. But I, I'm just saying there has to be education. That's why the preaching of the gospel is there. But then, you, like you said, you got to move to that next level. What do you do? Well, you get involved. You attend meetings. I remember one time when I was in Lenox, where I was pasting there in Lenox, Georgia, I went to a city council meeting one night. As I preached on Christian citizenship, I drove home that we're to be involved, we're to be salt and light, we're to get out here and get involved in government. And so I just went to the city council meeting that night, came over and sat down. It was like nobody there. So when they had their break to go to the bathroom and get something to drink, uh, the clerk came over there and said, Why are you here? I said, I'm a citizen. You're not here to complain about nothing or nothing. I said, no, I'm just here to assist. Blew them away. I mean, you came here because you cared? <laughs> oh, I'm not going to sit there and preach. They ought to be involved. And it, you're not ghosts. I'm, I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. It's this public forum. You can come. I'm sorry, y'all. Do you have the dates for the Pastor's Day in January? It's going to be... Um, 27th of January. I think I'm right. That's a Monday. Check me on that. Alright, as Christians we have a responsibility to protect freedom of future generations. Um, again, I see that in this incident. And I'll close, get y'all out of here. Y'all remember this situation with, with Naboth and Ahab and he 
you know, um, eventually he went home crying and Jezebel found out and killed the guy and got the land. Anyway, but he kept trying to get him to sell his land. He, he could have bought land anywhere, but he wouldn't sell. Why he wouldn't leave? He said, I cannot give up my inheritance. And so that's what I tell people as well. I can't give up my inheritance. Now that's, that's five of my grandbabies. I got six now. And sitting over here at Nora Mills in, the, in Helen, Georgia. And those babies are looking to me. Do I not care about what my grandkids and my kids are going to go through? Do I not? How can we say we love God whom we've never seen? We don't love people we see every day. And that's where we get back to remembering we can't give up our inheritance. You've got to remember our founding fathers willing to give their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred. That's what it took to establish our nation. God bless that. It won't take anything less than that to preserve our nation. We have to be willing to give up our our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor. People are not willing to give that up. Freedom isn't free. Our salvation is free, but it wasn't cheap. Jesus paid the price. <laughs> and our freedom here, you know, England didn't say, hey, if you want it, you can have it here. Let me sign it over to you. It didn't happen that way. <laughs> no. And let me tell you something. We're not here today standing in this room without guards coming here to get me without our veterans who went over there and gave their lives and continue to die to keep us free. That's just the way it is. Um, that was my last statement there. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. And then I close with that. Pogo. Yes. We met the enemy. He is us. <laughs> in this case, we have that responsibility in our government. And so if it's not getting done, then we're part of that problem. Pray and let y'all go. Father, thank you tonight for this opportunity just to be challenged. Uh, my own heart reinvigorated tonight in thinking about these things as we go forward in Christ's name. We thank you. Amen. Thank y'all. Y'all got a whole.